so many people hate their own response to the following question. So what does your company actually do? Because in this moment, my friend, you have three options, okay? Number one, pitch slap your prospect. Number two, fumble your way through a long-winded response. And number three, deliver a punchy elevator story that sparks intrigue. Now, if you're nodding your head at number three, but you're like, hold up, I don't even know where to begin, then hey, don't worry. I've got your back. All right, head on down to www.theraviregiani.com forward slash your elevator story to unlock your very own free elevator story script, template, and guide. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. When I think of an influential communicator, I think of my guy, John Morris. And at the age of 20, he started a painting company, hired his friends, lost money, and got sued. P.S. He won, right? But still, he got sued, man. And by 24, he'd closed a million dollars in nine months and fell wholeheartedly in love with the arena of inside sales. And in 2007, He called himself Mr. Record Breaker. But by 2010, the market took a downturn. A major pay cut followed and John failed to keep up with the image of success that he was portraying to the outside world. I mean, I can continue, but real talk, ladies and gents, I don't need to because you'll know from this snippet of John's story that he understands this one thing. And I say it all the time, right? Imperfection equals connection. And fast forward to today. Well, John is a husband, a dad, and the executive director of brand over at Club Colors. And today, I wanted to specifically talk to John about how to go about breaking our mask, owning our story, and create a world-class culture. Why? Because I really think that's his superpower. And today, I want to acknowledge him for it. John, what's good, brother? Welcome to the show. Ravi, thank you so much. What a great intro. I appreciate it. You've you've made it. Uh, my headphones are suddenly tighter than they were before as you've blown my head up, but I appreciate it very much. <laughs> it's all good, brother. I mean, your post from LinkedIn, I think it was about a week or two ago, showed me so many different parts of your story. And I was like, man, I never knew that about John. I never knew that about John. And I was like, I need to include that in today's message. So here we are, man. But listen, for the audience, the weirdos that don't know you, right? The individuals that don't know you. What's one part of your origin story that I didn't touch upon that you think the audience needs to know in order to get more context on who you are today? Yeah. So interesting enough is, and I'm 47 years old and I continue to figure out who I am on a daily basis. And if you're not figuring out who you are on a daily basis, then maybe you're not paying enough attention, but you know, you try and do it without being into yourself, if you will, right? You try to, you know, pay attention to who you are and figure out what is really authentic. I think the one thing that a lot of folks probably might take for granted or might not know is, you know, your outcome is controllable by the steps that you take throughout the journey, but it has nothing to do with where you started, right? I was born with, and whether you're born with, or it's 
becomes a, a wiring thing or whatever it might be, but attention deficit disorder and dyslexia. Okay. So school for me was not a joyous occasion, right? If the teacher called on me to answer a question verbally, I could articulate pretty well because I had to use that power to overcome the fact that I read at a horrible level. I probably was not completely focused. I wrote things upside down. I miss parts when I read. So there was some some difficulties there. The traditional means of going from high school to naturally you're going to go to college. And I grew up in a fairly affluent family. My father was successful. So going to college was just going to happen. The youngest of six kids and the other five had gone. You're going to go. And by the way, I was a baseball player and a golfer. So I was going to go play one of those sports at a university. And so you're going to have to go. Truth be told, I would have never gone to either one. I wanted to be a Marine. I absolutely want to go be a Marine. I thought that that was going, and sometimes you know yourself better than other people do because I knew I needed the discipline. The best that I ever was in sports or with my father or in any situation was when I was given high levels of discipline. When somebody was encouraging me and telling me that I was doing really well but and inspiring me, but was absolutely controlling that you will do this, you will do this, and was tough on me when I did it. Those are all the coaches I remember. They're all the teachers that I remember. And it certainly built the foundation of the relationship I had with my father because he knew me better than anybody else. That you can't let the, if you let this kid kind of just go like this, he's just going to float off and into the world and just be chatty Cathy and who knows where he's going to go. He has to be disciplined. So I wanted to be a Marine. I thought that was going to be the best path for me. But again, coming from an affluent upbringing, it was like, no, you go to university, you don't go to the, to the Marines, right? So I failed out of college, aggressively failed out of college, like really bad, like kept it from my parents for a year and a half, you know, was doing everything I could to, to hide it and fell into like a deep depression and knew that I was failing and I was letting my dad down. I was letting my mom down and thought the world was going to come to an end because if you didn't have a college degree, the world, it's over for you, right? That was the thought process. And then to your point, somebody gave me a chance and somebody decided to mentor me. And by the way, it was in a very aggressive manner where it was like, if you didn't have the right amount of call count in an hour, they were behind you on you. Now, for most people, they would have been like, I would have quit immediately. For me, at 21 years old, 22 years old, having just failed out of college, I needed somebody to stand behind me and be like, make that call. Make the next call, right? And in doing that, I started to become really good at it. And then I was, I was chasing validation. I was chasing that validation. So that would be something that people... I don't think a lot of people know that about me is that I didn't just wake up and understand the business side of the business and didn't understand sales and I wasn't trained on it. In fact, I went through a painstaking journey just to get to the point of going, well, sales is going to be the avenue. Mm. Yeah, sales has been your vehicle for, I suppose, channeling your story, teaching others life lessons, and also being your vehicle for impact, lack of a better better phrase i know we use that term all the time but i think i think that's probably fitting here so man when i came over to chicago and i was speaking to your company your team at the sales kickoff in the back of my mind here's one thing i was genuinely curious about i was thinking is 
the value system and vibe going to be congruent with what people see online? And it was actually yeah. better. And I think that's very, 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 very rare because sometimes there's a lack of congruency between what people say online and who they are offline. And it was so cool, man, to meet you in the flesh. And it didn't really feel any different. It felt like I'd just known you for ages, man. Yeah. It was so cool. And I think I want to acknowledge you for that because it was key that throughout the entire day, it was key that you have been instrumental in being a mentor to so many young sellers. It, it must be pretty cool for you to see them grow every day. Yeah, it's it's pretty outstanding, especially since in many cases, uh, the folks that we're bringing into the team, this is their first experience in Corporate USA, and it's their first experience in sales. And those of you that are listening to this know, especially if you're in sales or really anyone going into a corporate setting, the first role that you go into kind of helps you to start to define who you want to be and whether or not that organization is consistent with the direction you want to go. So our big purpose here at Club Colors is to create inspiring brand experiences. And that all starts with culture. You have to have a culture where people, to your point, we can't be creating content. We need to document activity and post it. Because if folks come in here for an interview and then within three weeks recognize that it was a bunch of BS that was put online and that is not the vibe, then you've essentially tricked people into coming into your organization, which is then going to cause a high turnover rate. And moreover, they're not going to tell the brand story the way that you want. So we don't create content here necessarily. What we look to do is document what is actually happening. So that means that we are culture first and then content creation second, not the other way around. That's such a good point, actually. I never thought about it like that for you guys, but it's so true because all I see is pictures of wins of weekly meetings where people are holding up the club colors belt because they've won it and celebrating one another. It's less, hey, here's four tips for Baba Bang. It's look at what we're up to which is very mm -hmm. interesting, actually, now that you say that and the intention behind it. But, you know, one thing I find fascinating is, is when you see a culture like that, I like to take a look at the leader and the way that they give people permission to be who they are and also how much they own their story. So let's take it back for a second. Your post from about a week ago where you walked through your story arc. I was fascinated by it because I think it takes a lot of self-awareness and vulnerability to be able to share that with the world. But I think it also gives other team members the ability to do it themselves. So is that intentional by you? Is it a part of the culture? Have you always been that way? If not, when did you start operating in that way? In fact, it's probably a little bit against the grain of the nature of most of the folks here at the organization, especially in a leadership role who are really who are very much authentic and vulnerable in person, but maybe not as willing to use social media as a vehicle to tell stories. For me, in some cases, it's actually therapeutic. And it helps me to kind of monitor and control myself. And it helps me to have some gratitude of where I am and where I came from and that it wasn't it wasn't a snap of the fingers. There's been a lot of a lot of pain in order to get to the really good parts, right? So I think that for me, it's not wanting to do the same old, same old on content creation and social media where it's always a promotion of the organization. 
The fact is that people buy from people that they love, they trust, that they can connect with. And people love the story of other folks on the climb. Now, I could tell you the story of Club Colors. Uh, we were at one point a 20-something million dollar company. There was a previous ownership team that instituted some modifications and changes into the organization that the market did not embrace. The company dropped down significantly to the almost cut in half in sales and was losing a significant amount of revenue per year prior to Chris Tossi and Jeff Balmay taking over the organization with support from a board and essentially turning the company around. And their vision was to become advisors rather than order takers and to build a culture that was so dynamic that we had a line of people wanting to come in the door to work here. And then getting that message out externally so that there was a line of clients that wanted to be part of a movement, not just buy transactionally from an organization. When I came in as a sales manager five years ago, I asked them that question. I said, I know I'm here to manage sales, but what do you really want? Like, what's the real thing that you really, really want behind hitting the numbers and and the traditional things that I know I'm supposed to do? And that was what they told me. They said, look, we want you to create a line of people that want to come work at Club Colors. We want a line out the door. And we want clients that want to come work here because of the total brand experience that they feel something when they operate with us beyond we got the right product sent at a good price, right? That doesn't retain clients over an extended period of time. And by the way, it doesn't make you a trusted advisor. Therefore, you're replaceable. If you're transactional, you're replaceable. If you're a trusted advisor that makes somebody feel something, then you can sustain a relationship for a significant period of time. So my story, my journey as a human being kind of matched what Club Colors was going through. It was like, hey, look, we're on the climb together. So I just kind of married where where my heart was and what I felt and what I wanted it to look like with their vision. And we started to install different things. Part of that was, I believe that wins create wins. That's momentum. And especially in a sales department, you have to create an environment where it's not just a scoreboard and data that comes out hourly or weekly. You have to acknowledge people for doing great things that are consistent with the brand goal, the brand vision, the brand purpose, the brand mission, whatever you want to say. You have to promote that And it can't be spaced out so far that everyone forgets the energy from the last time somebody got recognized. So, you know, the gong was a goofy thing because we put the gong in because we wanted to create an immediate recognition method where somebody performs at a level, hits the gong, tells the story of how they started with the client to where they got the client to and how that sale happened, which ultimately not only gave them recognition, but it then gave a platform to train new people coming in who went, Ooh, if I do that, I get to hit that gong and I'll get that recognition. So we started to create that momentum. Then we said, okay, but there's got to be a monthly thing where somebody gets the legacy piece. That's the belt where that sticks with them. And we want to turn that into a kind of like a ceremony where they come out to music. Like we would go, I would send an email out to them and go, what's your walk-up music? They're like, what? I go, what is your walk-up music? If you won the belt for the month, what music would you walk up to? So they would send it back. So we'd play their walk-up music and then we'd do a big speech about, you know, all the performers that hit the minimum standard of performance. We make it very clear that hitting your budget is minimum standard of performance. 
but we recognize that hitting the minimum is a good thing. Then we hit the top performers, and then the belt champion comes up to their music, gets the belt, and then we document that to create that experience out. So that turns into recruiting, turns into brain impression, also turns into proof of concept with our clients who we are building culture for clients. That's what we do for a living. So we better have a great one here in order for that to take. And what that did was it created moments. A brand should try and create as many positive, inspiring moments and brand impressions as they possibly can and document those to influence that behavior. So initially when we started, it was very tactical. It then became habitual and then it became traditional. So you go from tactical implementation to repetitiously installing it to till it becomes habitual and then it becomes traditional when the managers don't have to say it anymore, when the staff members are going, are we doing the belt this week? Are we doing, who's getting this? Go up and hit the gong. When you start to have the staff members pushing it instead of management, it is no longer habitual. It's now tradition. And when, when you look at organizations that have great tradition, they typically have a great story that is being told internally. Now you document that And that becomes your marketing push externally so that people are buying you as a brand for more than your product and service. They're buying the total brand, the whole experience. I want it all, right? That's what we're trying to do. I feel you, brother. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but I like those three steps of tactical, habitual, and then traditional. So I just want to touch on something there before I go back to another element of your story, which I want to dig deeper into. But Say if somebody's at the tactical piece, okay, they're trying to change the narrative like Club Colors was just before it changed hands of ownership. They're trying to change the narrative. So they say, okay, we need to get tactical on these five specific things. How do they choose those five things? So you've chosen the belt and celebrating certain types of behavior, but how did you come up with the idea that those are the right things that you need to tactically ingrain? Well, I came up with three or four things. And then narrowed it down to the one that worked, that was bought into by the demographic of of the staff, right? So what we know is we have our average salesperson at our company is probably in the range of about 28 years old, right? So a lot of these folks are still very playful in spirit, right? You get an old, old dude like me, right? It's like, Okay, just give me like a coupon to the local golf course, man. You know what I mean? But <laughs> but for a lot of the younger folks, it's got to be playful stuff, right? They want greater purpose. They do want great opportunity and they want financial, but they want that playful feeling. So we tried a few things out. So I think that what it really comes down to is first off, determining what is the end goal of what you're trying to achieve, then taking a really strong look at the demographics of your team. What's the personality of your team? And then how do you reverse engineer those factors to some sort of promotional product that can take? So a couple of our clients are a little bit older as far as demographic. And when we looked at their demographic, we came up with the fact that they should have something more like a master's jacket. So one of our our partners has, for each region of their company, they have a, a blazer with their company logo on it. And the lining has also got their company logo on it. And the blazer gets passed around from month to month. 
but it's like Masters, but their color's not green. It's a different color, but they pass that around. And then at the end, somebody gets a, a trophy for the year, whatever region had the biggest one, and there's a plate that goes on it, and it's like a big golf trophy, but it's their logo. So you got to kind of figure out what is going to play with your people, and it's not a bad idea to try a few things, get a sample, try a few things, and maybe even send a note out to your team and go, if you had the option of these three rewards, which one would you take? Do a vote and then, you know, figure it out from there. I got to tell you, when I came in, I looked at this group and I saw I saw a lot of folks who were former athletes. I saw a lot of folks that were kind of fun and I just felt the environment and I was like, it's a belt. That's it. Like, we got to do the belt. And I got to tell you, you know, a lot of folks would be like, well, that seems like something that is, you know kind of male centric, if you will, like male wrestling, whatever. But I got to tell you, not these days. If you watch the WWE, I mean, women are into this. They love this stuff. And the folks all across the board love what it stands for. They not, not only love the product, but they love what it stands for. And so that's why you got to not just go, well, here's your product. It's got to be pictures that are taken, a speech given. The speech has to have feeling. I saw her up all night. You know, I saw her online at home. I was on Teams and she was on the chat at 11 o'clock, right? I, she's, she worked her tail off all month to get to this. Then the, it's the words. The belt just helps to solidify the words, right? So it's the total experience that you have to put into place. And then promoting people on your company pages with that experience not only helps them within their book of business, because what will happen is clients start reaching out to the winner and going, I'm so glad you got that. I was thinking with the big order that I did with you in March that there was a chance you might win the belt. I'm glad I could be a part of it. Now you're creating depth of partnership because you're not transactional. Your client is rooting for you to win the belt. So now we've got clients rooting for their brand advisor to win the belt, right? So it's creating this energy that goes out to the marketplace within their book of business. We just had two clients in here for a tour that are going to record a podcast. They saw the belt sitting by the desk, went right up to Kevin C and said, congratulations on winning the belt, right? They're in town from Charlotte. We're in Chicago, but they know what the belt is. So our clients know what the belt is and are fighting on behalf of their braid advisor to help them to win the belt. That's when you start to get the magic, that transition, that flow. Cut, pause, or whatever we need to say for me to get your attention. Because before we get back to the show, I have some breaking news. Okay, listen, ladies and gents, feature selling is dead. And story selling is alive because if you really want to build trust, stand out, and close more deals in a recession, then you need to try something new so you can drive your company to a world of efficiency and profitability. And that's exactly why I've opened up many slots this year for different companies to partner with me for implementing my story selling framework inside of their sales process. Now, the outcomes are all the good stuff. I'm talking about increasing average order value, collapsing time inside of your sales cycle and driving win rates. But more importantly, transforming your team to sell in a way that really focuses on human connection. And hey, that's what I'm all about. So if you're nodding your head right now, then head on down to www.therabirajani.com forward slash contact 
to book your complimentary discovery call to see if there's alignment. And hey, if there is, great. And if there's not, that's cool too. I'll see you on the other side. That's beautiful, man. It's so funny you say that because it's so true, right? Like when I think about all the individuals that won the belt recently, I was like, oh, I met them in person when I came over to speak. I was rooting for them and wondering who's going to win it next month. So that's awesome to see, man. And, you know, something you spoke about when it comes to part of your story and the idea of being rewarded, you said, you know, you were making cold calls and you had a tight leash where somebody would say, hey, let's go harder. Let's do more. Let's do more. And that was early on in your career. And that style of leadership worked for you. But in the current organization that you're in, how do you balance the concept of rewarding people on outcomes and rewarding people for behavior? So let me give you an example. Let's say you get a salesperson who makes one call and they receive a deal. All of a sudden, it's this fluke deal that came through and it was chunky and they feel like a legend, but they don't know how to replicate it versus person B, which is putting in the work and engaging in the right behavior over the past 90 days, a win's going to come. It's just a matter of time. How do you balance supporting the two so that culture doesn't shift to just saying, yay, let's focus on the wins versus the way you get the win? It's a great question. From a content creation standpoint of what we were showing to the external market, we're showing the outcome. The outcome, right, ultimately, that's the, it's the highlight reel, okay? But what we've got is a daily Teams conversation happening where every time you, you put an opportunity together, every time you hit a new pinnacle, every time you hit a new moment, you're sharing that situation. So what we've created was a communication style internally in the office where folks are going, I'm about to break my own personal record for the amount of emails and phone calls that are going to send out. Who's coming with me? So Mm. we created that type of challenge, that type of environment. Or it's a communication like, hey, I just for the first time told a story in this way. And it really, really worked. So here's how I did it. And they'll bullet point it and they'll send that out to the call center, which we call the brand channel email. So we've got hour by hour scoreboards that come out for each activity, right? We can, we can see, but we, what we want to do is encourage it not to come from management. We want it to come from teammates saying, I just had a personal best here. I just tried this, this happened. And then management recognizing it instead of management holding people accountable to do it. And then people whispering at the core, like, you know, he keeps saying this or saying that, but it doesn't really work. Right. So we've created a communication style internally, and then we've got several different levels of reward system. Another thing that we've done is we've set up a jot form. We've got six core values here at Club Colors. You can go on and nominate your peer for showcasing that core value at the highest level. You write a little passage. It gets sent to HR and their manager that they're being recognized for by a peer for meeting one of those standards, one of those core values. And then it goes to their email. We tally all that. And then on a monthly basis, they're given some sort of party, some sort of uh, coupon to go on our company online store and get apparel. They're given you know, a restaurant, gift certificate, whatever it might be for adhering to and living out the core values on a daily basis. So we're recognizing people for steps, process, culture, and then the end result, which is the bigger outcome. We even have something where it's a quality control measure, a form that comes out 
we're trying to be under a 1% error rate on everything we do, entering in data, embroidery, screen print, shipping, everything. And so we actually have a scoreboard that comes out of who had the lowest error rate Mm. for the month. So we're managing quality and performance. The one thing that a lot of companies do is they just reward people for the highest level of sales. Meanwhile, the company lost money on the margin because there was five credit memos that nobody recognizes, but you still got to give them the, the reward. We're making sure that we hit every single angle so that it's not a fluke. That's gold. That final acknowledgement for people on the error rate is absolutely gold. Because like you're right, somebody may have engaged in inauthentic behavior to get that end result. As a result, you know, it's not as fruitful yeah. as people think. So it sounds though, from what you're saying is it's really celebrating internally the micro behavior, which is occurring daily, which stacks the wins and builds momentum to the end result every single month, which is then publicized online, which builds that momentum of culture where people say, I want to be a part of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, it kind of leads me to my next question, man, which is how does this work at scale? Meaning when I was hanging out in Chicago with you guys, one of the things that I noticed was that there's also leaders outside the leadership team who have gone from individual contributors to managers now, and mm. they are flying the flag of culture. But what did that process look like? Because John can't be everything to everyone and be everywhere. People are going to want to know, how can they do this for a company which doesn't have a couple of hundred people, but maybe a couple of thousand? So how do you, how do you ensure values are consistent at scale and leaders also operate in a way that's congruent with what's been identified as the core values. Well, what's interesting is the first step is <laughs> a challenge I think a lot of big organizations have, and I think you alluded to it early on in the conversation, is what they are showing to the world is not what's actually happening within the building. Sucks, bro. Don't do that, anybody. Don't do that. Right. It sucks, right? So it sucks. It's a big problem look. because now you're a hypocrite to your thousand people. If you're creating content that says that this is who we are, and then you've got 400 people throughout the country going, yeah, right, then there's no way they're going to buy into the message. So the first thing you have to do is you have to start to recognize that core values are not what you hope to be or what you think you potentially are or what would really sound great on a, a content bite, right? It would sound great if we said we were this, right? It also shouldn't be something that you think socially would sound amazing. Like this would be great for PR. This is our core value and everyone will believe we're this. And then you're not. Like, you know, it always cracks me up when I see these companies that something event will happen in the world and then they'll change all their logos and they'll do all this stuff. But then you don't see any of their people actually saying something about it. So why even make that a stance? Unless everyone's around it. It's, you can give back. You can do things under the radar. But your core values should be at the center of everything that you do. So what we did was we got people from all different levels of the organization, from executive to folks that may have only been with the company for three weeks. And we're in a production standpoint. And we picked we selected people from all different backgrounds, all different divisions, all different lengths of time with the company. We went up to Geneva, Wisconsin for a strategic retreat. We called these folks in and we said, we spent the whole, a whole day prior 
as an executive team mapping it out, how we're going to ask the questions. Then we brought everyone up the next day, spent a whole day figuring out what were going to be the core values. So we already had a start point. And then we started saying, list off, let's list off, and we whiteboarded it. Let's list off, who are we? What are some of the things that clients love us for? What are some of the things that you see happening at our organization on a daily basis? What are some of the things that went from tactical to habitual to tradition? What are some of those things? And we had about 25 written down. And then we just started narrowing down, like, do we really do that on a daily basis? Is that just kind of a nice to say, or are we really that? So we go, nope, we're not really that. We'd eliminate it. We narrowed it down to six. We voted on it. We agreed those were the six. And then they are everywhere in the building. They're visual. They're on all of our emails. They're on our website. There's signage all over the place. So we knew that once you have them, you have to repetitiously install them. We started something called Collab, where we appointed people from different areas of the organization, no matter their title, but based on their buy-in to the overall brand purpose, culture. And we appointed them to be part of a volunteer department called Collab that controls culture. So they are the voice of the people. You know, HR, you've got HR, right? And HR is supposed to be human resources. But in many cases, what it really is, is policing. It's a lot of documentation. And in many cases, it's actually asset protection. Okay. Not at Club Colors. HR is giving the people a voice by letting the people speak. So we tie that in with collab and we theme everything. So we'll, we'll go, we're going to have an event on Wednesday. This is the winning, of, winning is fun event. So we tie in a core value and then we say, okay, so this happened over the last two weeks. This person wins the win is, winning is fun core value for that period. And we'll, we'll just do little drawings, a little stuff. So how do you do that at scale with a big organization? Well, I can't tell every organization how operationally to install it unless I analyze your organization. I'm sure I could come up with an idea. But what I would tell you is it starts with the top decision makers that are appointed to determine this, getting voices from every direction of the company, every role in the company, every level of the company to have a say in it. Because they're the ones who have to live out the core value. They're the ones actually in the trenches doing it. And once you've got that, it's got to be sent out repetitiously and continuously talked about and rewarded. So that's it starts tactically. Then it becomes habitual. Now, we went from about 30% of our staff six months ago could say, these are six core values without even thinking about it. But we quizzed them. We'd be on a conference call about sales. We go, okay, name our six core values. So we just tied it into everything. And then next thing you know, now we're probably at about 85% of the organization could tell you four out of the six without blinking might have stumble on two, but they will, they'll come back to it. All of our content we started pushing out. So what ends up happening is you create this, this energy, this movement, and the clients that we had in for the tour were just walking around. They're like, every room that we went in, your core values are hanging on the wall. So they noticed that. That's exactly what we're talking about, is you can't just tell people these are the core values and then just leave it there, throw it on a TV commercial, and it's done, put it on a signature. It's got to be repetitious until it's habitual. It's got to be tested. It's got to be asked. It's got to be tied into incentives. It's got to be recognized and, rewar- and rewarded. It's got to be on trophies. You've got to win a patch where when you are have, have mastered the art of two of the six 
core values, you get a patch with two of your logos on it because you got two out of six and you got to graduate to the next one. There's so many ways you can get creative with promotional products, branded apparel to get it infused into the organization to create buy-in. And when that happens, then all of a sudden you'll start to see clients start to say, you lived out this core value for me. Now you know you're winning. I mean, man, you know what's really stood out for me is in everything that you said was one key thing, which was, well, actually several, but the thing that really shocked me in a good way was you all got together in Wisconsin and you said, where are we not in, well, where are we not operating in a way that's congruent with our values? And then we cross it out. You very rarely hear about companies crossing it out because they don't feel authentic with their values. Love that. And I can attest to it, brother. When I came to your offices to film that workshop that I was doing early in the morning after the sales kickoff, on the front of the podcast store, as soon as I came in, was your values. Everything I could mm-hmm. just feel was on brand from the color palettes to the the values being plastered everywhere from the energy in the office. It's very similar to the energy that people feel online. So kudos to you, man. And you know, what's funny. I had all these questions I was thinking about asking you as you were talking and then you kept pivoting to answering them. So I was like, okay, beautiful. I don't even need to do anything here, man. But you know, you know, Notre Dame football, right? Notre Dame football's got that gold sign with the blue writing. It says play like a champion. No, not, uh, I mean, no, but okay. let's pretend I do. So, yes. All right. So, Notre Dame football, in their locker room, mm. they got to go down these steps in order to get out to the field. So, okay. right at the visual, if you were on like step, if you're going down the steps, right in line with your eyesight, it says play like mm. a champion. That is okay. the Notre Dame core purpose. It's their core value. Play like a champion. Every player walking out to the locker room hits that sign. It's a rite of passage. Strap on that chin strap. I'm about to go play like a champion. That's the mindset. Boom. They smack that sign. And that thing has been sitting there. Maybe they've they probably smacked it into obliterance or they've had to kind of change it out. But that's the mindset that they're creating with every player that goes out on the field. It's the last thing they see before they leave the locker room. That is branding. That's how you get people to all buy into the same philosophy. And to all be moving the right direction. But if that sign wasn't there and it was just a coach going, hey, remember to play like a champion, would it sink in as much? Or does it sink in more when it's there and everyone hits it because they're all on the same team and that's how they're going to think, right? And now everything is centered around, everything they do is centered around that core value. Is that playing like a champion? No, you know, not not being on time is not playing like a champion. Is not finishing your... Your sprint, playing like a champion, no, that's not how a champion plays. Like, we play like a champion, it means you finish the tackle. You finish running the ball. You finish the pass. You finish all those things. And so that's – I don't understand why more brands don't learn from athletics and coaches who all have core values and core purposes visible in the locker room where everyone rallies around it. Why do not more organizations not have that where it's a collective agreement, this is who we are. The million dollar question. Interesting problem and to solve. Man, what a beautiful way to to end the show as well. Ladies and gents, John Morris. Dude, listen, before we let you head out, you know, as you know, the show is called The Influential Communicator. So 
it's only right to ask you, who is one person that you genuinely absorb a ton from in day-to-day life, LinkedIn, wherever, and you view them as an influential communicator? Who's that one person? Well, I would be crazy to not say you because I do get a ton of stuff from you. I love the way you write. I love the way you record videos. I love the way you speak and articulate. I would definitely say you. I would, I'm going to drop Pete Durand on who Pete rarely makes a video, but his copyright is absolutely fantastic. And he hooks you in right off the bat with his narrative. And he's very authentic and vulnerable in the way he tells stories. He's very thought provoking. He's extremely articulate. And quite honestly, getting to know him, he's one of those people who you just kind of gravitate towards and would like to be like, you know, he's totally in shape. He just has got his faith is in line. He's got multiple businesses going. He understands every element of business so he can speak on every level of business. And he genuinely gives a dang about anyone who follows him that connects with him and actually really engages with him. He gives a lot of time and effort to that would be my response. Well, dude, firstly, thank you for acknowledging me, man. I really appreciate the kind words and Pete's great guy, man. I remember one of the first podcasts that I ever did when I first started out on my journey was Pete's right. They're eating, eating crow. Yeah, man. Eating crow. So he's a great dude. Love his energy. He's just, he's one of the good ones, man. Just like you, brother. One of the good ones. But ladies and gents, if you want to go and learn more about Club Colors, then head on down to the link, which is waiting for you inside of the show notes. And if you want to learn more about what John and the team are up to, John, where do they go, man? Where do they hang out? Where yeah, you can send me an email to jmorris at clubcolors.com. I'm all over LinkedIn, as Ravi said, and I also have a podcast called In the Club, powered by Club Colors, which is on Apple, Spotify, and our Club Colors YouTube channel. We're out in the Chicagoland area, so if you ever want to stop in and take a tour, I give one heck of a tour. Let's go. Come see me. <laughs> go knock on his door. Say, I want a picture with that belt, people. You need to go check it out because it is literally like a WWE belt. It really is. And by the way, if you <laughs> want a belt, let me know. I'll get you a belt. There you have it. If you want a belt for your organization, John is going to give it to you. John is going to give it to you. All right. Hit him up at, is it Jay, Jay Morris at clubcolors.com? Jay Morris at clubcolors.com. There you have it. There you have it. I'll see you next week for another episode. Same time, same place. And I'll see you on the other side. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Because I tell you what, my friend, my big mission is to help B2B sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value. So, hey, The more the word gets out about this podcast, the more people we can gather on this mission. So if you could support me, then hey, that would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you. All right, I'll see you on the other side.